So, Psalm 37. Karen can't believe it. I'm going to cover 35 verses um, tonight. We, we've covered four in the last two sermons. So, I just wanted to let you know that so you won't get tense and worry that you know, we're going to be here for five hours. Because the first 75% of the sermon, I'm still going to be in the first eight or nine verses. But the, the last part of the, of the psalm, it's really just supports what's being said and, and continues to, to echo the same theme over and over again. So as I thought about Psalm 37, two guys immediately came to my mind and I thought, no, I can't fit those guys into this sermon. I, they, they don't fit in this sermon. And I kept dismissing them, but they kept coming back into my mind as I meditated deeply about the psalm and as I prepared uh, to get ready to, to write the sermon. And we'll come back to those two guys in a few minutes. Psalm 37 is about a lot of things, but preeminently it's about one thing. Do you and I want God or not? I'll just let you sit and think about that for a minute. Do you really want God? Do you really want to walk with God or not? Do you want to know and obey Jesus Christ? Do you really want that? Is that who you are? That's really what the psalm is about. <laughs> David is an old man. He tells us in verse 25 when he writes this song, he is an old man. He knows what matters and he knows what doesn't matter at all as I think I've shared with you a few weeks earlier. He knows what's important. He knows what's not important. He knows that ultimately there are two kinds of people in the world. And I know you hear this said a lot. But there's one ultimate dichotomy. There are two kinds of people in the world. Those who delight in Jesus Christ, verse 4, and those who don't. Those who commit to Jesus Christ, verse 5, and those who don't. Those who trust in Jesus Christ, verse 5, and those who don't. That's what David knows. It's true. I'm 61. I would say David's right. Of course he's right. He's writing the Word of God. And I, I'm just going to go back and ask you. Where do you fall out? Where do you land? Which category are you in? Which category are you in? There's this man-made myth that humanity loves to embrace and propagate and disseminate. And you, you guys know it if you've been around. I, I, I talk about this off and on. But, you know, mankind likes to profess some self-righteousness that he's looking for God. I really am looking for God. I just can't find God. Now, isn't that what most men say? Oh, if I could find God, I would love God. I would worship God. I would obey God. But I can't find God. God hasn't made Himself evident to me. The famous atheist, English philosopher, uh, in the 20th century, Bertram Russell. Some of you may have heard of this guy. He's very prominent. Again, an atheist. He was asked one time, well, what will you say to God if you find yourself standing before Him and He says, and God says to you, why did you not believe in Me? Does anybody know what his infamous, infamous response was? Bertrand Russell says, I will say to God, of course, He will never say this to God. He'll be on His face. 
But in his arrogance, he says, I will say to God, you did not give me enough evidence. You did not give me enough evidence. And I, I started to think about that, right? He must not have ever looked up. What does David say in Psalm 19.1? The heavens are telling of the glory of God. Bertrand Russell must have never looked around. Romans chapter 1, verse 20. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible attributes, His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that man is what? Someone tell me. Man's what? Without excuse. Bertrand Russell or anyone else never gets to stand in front of God and say, there was not enough evidence. No man gets to say that. No man gets to say that. I guess Russell didn't look within Romans 1.19, because that which is known about God is evident within man, for God made it evident to man. We've talked about this many, many times. You may be a liar, but you're not an atheist. There's no such thing as an atheist. There's no such thing as an agnostic. According to Romans chapter 1, God has put the knowledge of Himself in the, the soul of every man. He says, it is evident within them. I made it evident to them. Okay? Lastly, I would say, I guess Russell never looked in the Bible. Isaiah 45, 21, 22. I am the Lord and there is no other. God besides me, a righteous God and a Savior. There is none except me. I am God and there is no other. John 8.58, Jesus said, Before Abraham was, I am. John 14.9, Jesus said, If you have seen Me, you have seen the Father. The evidence abounds. Don't ever expect that you'll stand before God and say, I didn't know. You, no man gets to do that. No human being will ever get to do that according to Scripture, as we've talked many times, it's not that men don't know, it's that men do know, right? It's not that men don't know Jesus Christ is the Creator and the Redeemer, that He alone is God. It's not that men don't know that, it's that men do know that. Men do know that. It's not that mankind doesn't know that He is there. It's that mankind doesn't like that God is there. Mankind has declared his independence from God. He did it in the garden. And we see it every day on the news, don't we? Remember what Jesus said, John chapter 3, verses 19 to 20. He says, This is the judgment that the light has come into the world, and men, what? Men love the darkness rather than the light. For their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his deeds be exposed. It's not that men don't see the light. God says men see the light. It's that men hate the light. That's mankind's problem. Not that we don't see it. It's never been that men don't see it. It's that men hate it. It's never been a lack of evidence for the biblical God. It's always just been a premeditated rejection of God in the heart of mankind. So back to the two guys. When I was meditating on Psalm 37, I was thinking about these two guys, and I think they illustrate the point that I was just talking about. First, the rich young ruler. 
You guys know this story if you've been in the church. You know about this guy. He came running up to Jesus, right? And he said, what must I do to be saved? I mean, this was a can't-miss conversion, right? What must I do to be saved? And Jesus talked to him there for a few minutes. And then Jesus looked into his heart. You remember? Jesus looked into his heart. And he saw the problem. Anybody, everybody remember what the problem was? He was rich! And Jesus said, go and sell all that you have. Give it to the poor. And you come and you follow me. Now this has never been a prerequisite to be saved. So why is it a prerequisite for this man? Because obviously Jesus is looking into his heart and he sees that this man loves his money. It's the Psalm 37, 4 and 5 problem. This man could not delight in God. This man could not commit to God. This man could not trust God because he loved his money. And he loved the lifestyle his money could buy him. He was committed to luxury. He was committed to ease. He was committed to influence and power. All that money brings. He was committed to that. He would never commit to God. He trusted in his money. You know, this is what happens with a lot of people who are prosperous. They start to trust in their money, right? They don't need to trust in God. They trust in their money. They trust in their pile of money. And that's what was happening to this young man. You remember what the text says about him? He's in Mark chapter 10, verse 22. The text says, But at these words that Jesus spoke to him, his face fell. And he went away grieved, for he was one who owned much property. He could not delight in God. He had an idol. So I'm going to ask you tonight, are you free to delight in God? Are you free to commit to God? Are you free to trust in God? It's what David is saying to us, verses 4 and 5. It's true conversion. Are you free or do you have an idol? Are you free to go with God? Are you free to be intimate with God? Or do you love something in this world more? Listen, beloved, God is calling each one of us to Him. He's calling us to a deeper place. We're all in different places with the Lord. We're all in different places in our maturation and sanctification, but God is calling us to a deeper place. You know, it's what I always tell you. God says, you can, you can have all of me that you want. It's what God says in the Bible, right? Come! But the vast majority of mankind says, I'm not interested. I have this pile of money. Or I have this career. Or I have this dream. Or I have this marriage. Or I have these kids. You know, legitimate things can become illegitimate, right? When we put them before... God. So, he delighted in his money. You know, this guy could easily have been a church member, right? You don't have to really love God to be a church member. <laughs> you know, you just join the church, right? You don't have to really love God um, to, to do that. You can be a nominal religious kind of person and not really delight in the Lord and not commit to the Lord and not trust in the Lord. So, the second guy I thought of as I meditated on Psalm 37 
It was Matthew, or Levi as he's called in this text. Let me read it to you. Be familiar to most of you. Luke 5, 27-28. And Jesus noticed a tax collector named Levi sitting in the tax office. And he said to him, follow me. And Levi left everything behind. And he rose and he began to follow Jesus. Now, Matthew was a tax collector, so he would have been a rich man. But do you notice the radically different response than the rich young ruler? Matthew immediately recognized that Jesus Christ would be the ultimate delight of his soul. He doesn't hesitate to commit. He just gets up. I've always loved this story. He gets up and he leaves his counting table. He just leaves. He catches a true glimpse of Jesus Christ, which every true believer has. He, he caught a true glimpse of Jesus Christ and everything changed, right? I love this story about him. He trusted Jesus for all that He would need in this life and in the next life. He delighted, He committed, and He trusted. Psalm 37, 4 and 5. So, as we get into Psalm 37, you're one of these guys. You're the rich young ruler. You may not be rich, but you may have some other idol in your life. You're the rich young ruler or you're Levi, Matthew. We're one of the other. We're one of the other. So that's what I want to plant in your mind as we look at Psalm 37. As you know, we've been focusing on verse 4, delighting in God. I'm going to, this will be the third time I've said this to you, but I think it's, it's, it's important that I say it. Um, I want you to hear it. I've told you that when whoever I counsel, it doesn't matter what the problem is, I always end up at Psalm 37.4. You must delight yourself in God. No matter what kind of practical advice I give out, the most important advice I give out is you must delight yourself in God. Our problems and temptations are never a real problem. Our problems and temptations merely reveal our primary problem. Our primary problem is we're not delighting in God as we ought. That's always our biggest problem. Always. It's never not our biggest problem. you got a financial problem, a marriage problem, a sin problem, a financial problem. Well, don't wring your hands too much. Your God is God. Your God died for you. Right? Delight yourself in the Lord. That's the best advice I can give anyone. Delight yourself in the Lord. Yes, I know you have to deal with your problem. And you'll deal with your problem. God will walk you right through the problem. He always walks His people through the problem. But what you need to do in the midst of the problem, delight yourself in God and let Him see you delight in Him and let everyone around you see you delight in God. It's what Christians do. <laughs> it's what God's people do. So, as we pursue the Lord, we, we can successfully navigate the trial, the grief, the trauma, the loss, the hurt, the pain, the diagnosis, the unrealized dream. And we find ourselves as we enjoy God more and more that the allure of sin becomes ever uh, diminished and we get the victory. God is better than adultery, fornication, divorce, homosexuality, blind ambition, health, financial security, and every unrealized dream. God is better. 
It's why I say to you, delight yourself in God. You call me, I'd love for you to call me. We'll talk about whatever practical problem you have, but I'm going to say to you, delight yourself in God. In this, in this hard spot, if you've got a problem, you delight yourself in God. Two weeks ago, we talked about what do we do? What do we do if we don't delight in God? What do we do? We talked about some very practical things. Uh, we seek God. Secondly, we repent of all known sin. Thirdly, we pursue God in the Scriptures. Fourthly, we engage in daily conversation with God. The Bible calls it prayer. And fifthly, we fearlessly follow God in obedience. We push that envelope of obedience. You know, I will venture to say, and I'm a pretty good prognosticator, some of, your, some of you, your Christian life has not changed from 12 months ago. You're still in that same spot with God. You haven't pushed the envelope at all. You haven't changed at all. You haven't believed Him in a, in a, you know, a scary kind of risk-taking way at all. You know what He's calling you to do. You know what He's saying to you, but you're not doing it. I want to tell you, it's your loss. It's not His loss. It's your loss when you don't go with God. When you don't believe Him huge. It's your loss, beloved. Believe Him! Be like Levi. Be like Matthew. Follow the Lord. It doesn't mean we all you know, quit our vocation. That's not the point. The point is we're all in, right? The point is that we are all in with God. I won't reread verses 4 through 6. You heard it read earlier. And I'm going to say this for the third time, but I think it's crucial. There's no virtue in believing in God. You know, I talk to so many people. I know you hear it all the time too. Well, I believe in God. I believe in God. So what? Satan believes in God. We've been talking about this. So what? People think that's, there's some virtue to that. That that merits something before God. I believe He is. So what? The demons believe He is. And they tremble. They tremble. So, it follows, doesn't it, that if we are genuinely delighting in God, we will be, verse 5, verse 4, if we're delighting in God, verse 5, we will commit to God. If it's true, if it's real, if we're really delighting in God, we will commit to God. It's like, you know, day follows night. If you're really delighting in God, you've got to go with Him, right? <laughs> you're going to go with Him. You're going to go with Him. It's what David is saying to us. There's no lukewarmness to Christianity. If you've met Jesus Christ, you're all in. It doesn't mean we don't struggle and have dry seasons at times, but we're all in with this beautiful God. I love the Hebrew word translated commitment here. It means to roll or to wallow. Don't you love that word? Do you guys know that the American slang, uh, this is how we roll? Do you guys know what that means? This is how we roll? Is that universal? It just means this is how we live. This is how we operate. This is how we behave. So how does the Christian live, operate, and behave? How do we do it? How do we roll? We're committed to Jesus Christ. No questions asked. Right? No questions asked. I'm committed to the One who created me and the One who has redeemed me, the One who has promised to hold me forever in His hand. I am committed to Him. And I love, I love, it. I love the, I looked at this for a few minutes, this, this wallowing. We wallow in commitment, right? 
It's who we are. It's how we live. So our commitment to God is the fruit of our delight in God. Commitment means our loyalty, our dedication, our devotion, and our allegiance. It's, it's just simply the overflow of delight, right? Commitment is the overflow of delight. You say, Jim, my, my commitment is flagging. Well, okay, you're not delighting in God. You're not looking at God or delighting in God. You're spending no time in the Scriptures, I, I guarantee you. And you're probably not spending any time in prayer. Serious time. Because if you did, you would delight in Him. And if you did, you would commit to Him. You wouldn't just come to church if it's convenient, right? You, just, you wouldn't be a Sunday-going, you know, attender of church. You'd be a disciple every day of the week. That's what you'd be. In the workplace, at the university, in the neighborhood, you're a disciple. That's who you are. No, Jim, I'm a teacher. No, you're a disciple first. No, Jim, I'm a mother. No, you're a disciple first. No, Jim, I'm an accountant. No! You're a disciple first. If you have met Jesus Christ. So, it's why the rich young ruler couldn't sell all that he had and follow Jesus. He loved his money. He loved his money. He delighted in his money. David is an old man when he writes this. He says, I've seen it all. And this is how life is meant to be lived. God's people are meant to delight in Him, commit to Him. And look what he says in verse 5. Another thing he says, trust Him. Trust Him. I tell you all the time, you can be a church member without faith or trust, but you can't be a Christian, not a real Christian. You can be a church-going, nominal Christian, You know, the only risk you ever take, many people ever take, is to drive the church. You know, you might be in a wreck or something. Um, yeah, you don't have to have faith or, or real trust to be a church member, but if you're going to be a disciple, you have to have it. Because Jesus is going to ask you to do hard things. It just happens. He's going to ask you to, to believe hard things. Things that are outside your comfort zone. <laughs> What is it that pleases God? What do I tell you like every other sermon? What is it that pleases God? Hebrews 11.6. Somebody tell me what Hebrews 11.6 says. What is it that pleases God? Faith. So He's always going to push you into it. He's always going to push you into faith. He's always you know, ultimately going to be outside your comfort zone. He delights in commitment. He delights in trust. The Hebrew literally is trust upon Him and He works. Don't you love that? Trust upon God and God will work. The 23rd Psalm kicks in. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not lack. Trust in God and He will work. He will do it. As David says here, He will do it. He will do it. He will do it. He gives us the desires of our heart. And what is that? We've talked about that briefly. What is the desire of the born-again heart? Someone tell me. What is the desire of the born-again heart? Oh, health, wealth, and prosperity. That's what I want more than anything else. I want health, wealth, and prosperity. And some preacher said, if I'll send him a hundred bucks, I'll get health, wealth, and prosperity. I'll get a hundredfold return. 
That's what I want more than anything. Isn't that what the Christian wants? No! We could care less about health, wealth, and prosperity. We may get it because God is a good God. And I hate to say we could care less about it. It's important. I'm not, I'm not demeaning it that it's important to have health and to have means. I'm not, I'm not demeaning it. But it can't be before Christ. It can't be our God. It can't be our idol, right? We can't be like the rich young ruler. The desire of the born again heart is God. And it's what God is saying in Romans 8.28. It's what Romans 8.28 is pointing to. Let me read it to you. God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, those called according to His purpose, for whom He foreknew, He also predestined to become conformed to the image of His Son. Trust God for everything in this life and in the next. It's what David's talking about. It's what David is talking about. He will bring you to Himself and He will give Himself to you. It's one of the things I say most in this pulpit. He will be your reward. You will be a co-heir of the Son. It cannot not happen. <laughs> Who can turn back the outstretched arms of God? Of Jehovah? Who can? Who can do it? As Jeremiah and Ezekiel ask, nobody. David says, trust in Him and He will do it. Every good thing. You say, well, Jim, I, I, don't, I hadn't got that job yet. Well, listen. God's going to walk you through this process of getting that job. And you've got to learn to love Him and trust Him and worship Him and magnify Him in the process of getting that new job. Right? Or whatever the situation is for you. God expects you to delight in Him even though the prayer hasn't been answered yet. And oh, guess what? God expects you to delight in Him even when He says no to the answer. You remember Paul? God said no to Paul. I'm not going to remove that thorn in the flesh. And Paul says, therefore I am well contented in the fact that my God is God and He loves me. Listen, is that enough for you, beloved? How could it not be enough for you? How could it not be enough for you to know Him like that? To love Him like that? It's why, it's why real Christians can go to martyrdom and sing as history tells us they do. To live as Christ, to die is gain. To live as Christ, to die is gain. Psalm 37.6 is saying that our salvation is secure because it's God's purpose and it's God's work. Verses 7 and 8, you heard bless and read them, so I won't reread them. I hope you're looking at them. Again, to delight in God, commit to God, and trust in God is to rest in God. Resting in the Lord is the fruit of delighting in the Lord. Waiting patiently for the Lord is the fruit of delighting in the Lord. You guys are familiar with Psalm 46.10. God says, be still and know what? Be still and know what? I'm God! You know, I meet a lot of frantic people. <laughs> and I can get frantic myself at times, but I have to, you know, I have to throw it off. I have to throw off concern and worry. Jesus says, don't worry. When you find yourself in that, you have to throw it off. God says, be still and know that I'm God. Can you be still and trust God? Can you trust God like that? 
I love how Eugene Peterson paraphrases that, that great text. He says, step out of the traffic, take a long, loving look at God. You're awesome. Hi, God. I think I was sharing this with Blessing maybe a month or two ago. The Lord has really taught me something. You know, The longer you walk on the earth with God, the more you learn. And I'm 61. I was converted at 28. So, what, 33 years. You know, all of us, some of us want to do a great thing for God, right? We want to do a great thing for God. And that's admirable. It's admirable. You want to go do a great thing for God. Do you want me to tell you what's great in the eyes of God? Be still and know. Be still and know. That's great in the eyes of God. You don't have to orchestrate some great thing. Be still and know. And when it's time for you to go and do the thing, God will tell you, it's time to go and do the thing. <laughs> but in the meantime, I think I've had to exercise great patience at certain seasons in my life. And God just says, Jim, delight in me. Be still and delight in me. I hope, I hope that uh, you have learned that lesson. If you haven't, I hope that you will seek to. It is my conviction that resting and waiting on God honors Him and He delights in it. That we would trust Him like that. I shared it with you last week during the praise service. I, I couldn't help but think of it. Isaiah 40, verse 31. Um, let me just share it with you again. You guys know this. Famous promise. Yet those who wait for the Lord, what? Will gain new strength. They will mount up with wings like eagles, they will run and not get tired. They will walk and not become weary. Wait on God. Trust in God. Be patient with God. He knows what He's doing in your life. You don't have to go make something happen because you're tired of waiting. Wait patiently upon the Lord. The second thought here in verse 7 is the context of the whole psalm. Do not fret or worry because of evildoers, wrongdoers who seek to prosper. We talked about this a couple, three weeks ago. Why would the believer ever envy the unbeliever's prosperity? Why would a believer ever do that? It's what the text is saying. Why would you envy the wicked man who has prospered? Why would you even care about that? Why is that even on your radar screen? Why do you even think about that? Your inheritance is everything. Right? Your inheritance is everything. For it pleases God to give you the kingdom. Luke chapter 12. The only reason any believer would be um, envious of what the, the unbeliever has is because you apparently love money as much as they do or whatever it is. Their career or their fame or their whatever. Their notoriety. No right-thinking believer would ever envy such a person or a circumstance. Listen, the unbeliever, the prosperous unbeliever, he's under judgment, right? He's been a poor steward of all that God has given him. He's under judgment. And God has promised you every good thing. Listen, beloved. We should never be envious. And we shouldn't worry about the prosperity of the wicked. 
Again, what is that to us? That's God's business. God will judge the wicked. We don't worry about that. We don't worry about that. David says, don't worry. He says, cease from anger and wrath. God will judge all things righteously. So, verses 9-11, through 11, let me read them for you. For evildoers will be cut off, but those who wait for the Lord, they will inherit the land. Yet a little while, and the wicked man will be no more. I hope you're following me. Psalm 39, verses 9 and 10. And you will look carefully for his place, and he will not be there. But the humble will inherit the land and will delight themselves in abundant prosperity. This is, this, this is where he's going to take us for the rest of the psalm. The wicked and all he has is passing away. It, he will be cut off five times in this psalm. He says the wicked man will be cut off. It literally means to perish or be destroyed. It is a clear reference to eternal damnation. But the godly man will inherit an abundant prosperity. It's a clear reference to heaven. This inheritance is mentioned six times in the Psalms. Verse 12 through 15. Let me read it. The wicked plots against the righteous and gnashes at him with his teeth. The Lord laughs at him and he sees his day is coming. The wicked have drawn the sword and bent their bow to cast down the afflicted and the needy, to slay those who are upright in conduct. Their sword uh, will enter their own heart and their bows will be broken. When I read that, I, I couldn't help but think of Galatians 6 verse 7. You guys know this famous verse. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever you sow, that is what you reap. And God keeps perfect records. Whatever you sow in this life, you will reap. You will reap. So the God of Psalm 99, the God of, one, of Psalm 145, the God of 97 we talked about a couple of weeks ago, this God, this God, is our protection, right? Is our protection against the wicked. Verse 16, better is, this is really the context too of the whole psalm, better is the little of the righteous than the abundance of many wicked. You know this, I hope. God is better than a bunch of stuff. I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand, but you know God is better than a bunch of stuff, right? You know God is better than success. You know God is better than wealth. God is better than the perfect family. God is better! You're supposed to know God is better. The wicked will lose everything. The righteous man will inherit every good thing. Do the math. Do you have to do the math? Everything? Nothing? Do the math. Why would you envy an unbeliever? Ever. Of course, we know envy is a sin anyway. We should not be engaging in it, period. So, verse 17 to 22. Follow along with me, I hope you will. For the arms of the wicked will be broken, but the Lord sustains the righteous. The Lord knows the days of the blameless and their inheritance will be forever. When you see that word inheritance, it's a clear reference to heaven. They will not be ashamed in the time of evil and in the days of famine, they, they will have abundance, but the wicked will perish. The enemies of the Lord will be like the glory of the pastures. 
They vanish like smoke. They vanish away. Verse 21, The wicked borrows and does not pay back, but the righteous is gracious and gives. Verse 22, For those blessed by Him will inherit, again, a reference to heaven, will inherit the land, but those cursed by Him will be cut off. The blessed of God will inherit God and His blessing, and the cursed will be cut off. Verses 23 and 24, The steps of of a man are established by the Lord and he delights in his way. When he falls, he shall not be hurled headlong because the Lord is the one who holds his hand. David rejoiced in God's high sovereignty in the lives of his people. God establishes your steps, beloved. I love what Jesus said to his disciples in in John 11. He says, Walk while you have the light! Walk! Be fearless. You're a child of the King. Be fearless. God is your protection. God is your protection. God holds us. You can really be a disciple because God is holding you. Listen, if you're afraid to to be a real Christian in the world, that's on you. God's given you everything you need and more. If you call yourself a Christian but you can't live it outside that door, That's on you. That's on you. God has given you all that you need. And look what it says here. Verse 23, And He, that's God, capital H, He, He delights in His way. This whole delight thing, it's a mutual thing. We delight in God, and God delights in us. It's a beautiful, beautiful thing. Verses 25-29, to David says, I've been young and now I'm old, yet I have not seen the the righteous forsaken or his descendants begging bread. All day long he is gracious and lends, and his descendants are a blessing. Depart from evil and do good, so you will abide forever. For the Lord loves justice and does not forsake his godly ones. They are preserved forever. There's two references to heaven again. But the descendants of the wicked will be cut off and the righteous will inherit. There's heaven again, the land. Beloved, I know we have hard days. Don't misunderstand. I know we struggle. I know we weep. I know we cry. I know we mourn. I know we hurt. I'm 61. I've done it all. But we are His. We are His. And nobody can change it. Nobody can separate us from the love of God. I know sometimes it's hard, but rejoice and give thanks in that. Right? Rejoice and give thanks in that. God's people will abide forever. We will uh, uh, persevere forever. We inherit the land. We will dwell in it forever. Verses 30 to 34. The mouth of the righteous utters wisdom, and his tongue speaks justice. The law of his God is in his heart, and his steps do not slip. The wicked spies upon the righteous and seeks to kill him. The Lord will not leave him in his hand or let him be condemned when he is judged. Wait for the Lord and keep his way, and he will exalt you. Uh, he will exalt you to inherit the land when the wicked are cut off you will see it. You will see it. 
Verse 31, a picture of the born-again heart. Verse 33, a picture of God's protection. Verse 34, David says, wait and keep His way. What does it mean to keep God's way? What does it mean? Just do what He says. Delight in God. Commune with God. Obey God. It's what true believers do. We always end up, don't we, back at John 14, 15. Jesus says, if you love Me, you'll keep My commandments. If you love Me, you'll do it. We're not dutiful Christians. The true Christian is not a dutiful man or woman. The true Christian is in love. That's the bottom line. The true Christian is in love. So, Verses 35 to 38. I have seen a violent man, violent wicked man, spreading himself like a luxuriant tree in the native soil. Then he passed away, and lo, he was no more. I sought for him, but he could not be found. Mark the blameless man, and behold the upright. For the man of peace will have a posterity, but transgressors will be altogether destroyed. The posterity of the wicked will be cut off. The wicked man may prosper for a brief time, but he will be cut off. The upright man will have a posterity. The wicked will not. The transgressor will be destroyed. And that's the title of my sermon. This is the choice God puts in front of mankind. God says you can delight in Me now and forevermore, or you can face destruction. Do you see how insane sin is? As many theologians have commented, sin is insanity. It is insanity. God says, you can delight in Me or choose destruction. Those are the two choices that we have. We can be like the rich young ruler or we can be like Matthew. But there's no place in the middle. I want you to understand, there's no middle religious place to be. We are either delighting in God and committed to God and trusting in God or we will be cut off. That's what the text is saying, beloved. It's what the text is saying. Delight or destruction. There's no place in the middle. I know that much of the rest of the world wants to postulate that there must be some middle ground here. There's no middle ground. You find middle ground in the Bible and you come tell me. You find middle ground in the Bible. You come find it and you come tell me. I haven't been able to find it in 33 years. This is the choice that God has put before mankind. I'm going to share this with you one more time. I shared it with you three weeks ago. God has threatened terrible things if we will not delight in Him, which means simply, if we will not delight in Him, in Him it means we have rejected Him. Deuteronomy 28, 47 and 48, because you did not serve the Lord uh, your God with joy and gladness, therefore you will be destroyed. There's no middle ground. You delight and commit and trust to Christ or you will be cut off. That's it. That's it. Listen, I've done this for a long time. I've met so many people who are just kind of playing church, you know? They just kind of play church. You know, I want to keep up the charade. I want to check the box. Just so I can keep God working for me, right? Listen, don't insult God like that. Don't insult God like that. 
God knows your heart, beloved. He knows your heart. He knows if you're delighting in Him or not. He knows it. So don't play some silly game with Him. He knows it. And here's the deal. You know it too. You know it too. So, my challenge is, the rich young ruler, he would not delight in God. He, was happy, he would have been happy to do some religious stuff and attend church when it wasn't too inconvenient, but he would not delight in Jesus Christ. He loved his money too much. He will suffer eternal destruction. Matthew, the rich tax collector, decided to find his delight in Jesus. He could not be satisfied with simply doing some religious stuff and attending church when it wasn't too inconvenient. He had to know this awesome God. He had to walk with Him and worship Him and obey Him and delight in Him. There are two kinds of people in the world, beloved. Those who delight in Jesus Christ and those who don't. Those who commit to Jesus Christ and those who don't. Those who trust in Jesus Christ and those who don't. The rich young ruler and all like him who refused to come to Christ, who refused to delight in God, they will wither, they will fade, they will be no more, they will be broken, they will perish, they will vanish, they will pass away, they will be cut off, and they will be destroyed. This is Psalm 37. But Matthew and all like him who delight in Jesus, they are described in verses 39 and 40, and I'm done. But the salvation of the righteous is from the Lord. He is their strength in the time of trouble. And the Lord helps them and delivers them. He delivers them from the wicked and saves them because they take refuge in Him. Beloved, I exhort you tonight. I want you to decide. And God willing, most of you in here already know. I want you to decide which person you are. Are you the rich young ruler? Or are you Matthew? That's the question I want to leave you tonight. In love, I want you to know beyond any shadow of a doubt, you go home and do business with God if you have to, but I want you to know, are you the rich young ruler who's willing to do a little religion, but that's as far as he'll go? Are you willing to delight, commit, and trust? It's a beautiful text. I love Psalm 37. We're going to celebrate the Lord's table tonight. Uh, we have open communion here, so...